find 1 Corinthians in your Bible. Yep, if you can't find it, just go left at 2 Corinthians and you'll be there. Easy. So we just sang a song. Are you serious when you said you used to sing that every week? Like every week at the end of church? Held hands when you did it. Maybe we'll do that when we're done tonight. Old time sank. <laughs> so think about that lyric, though. I am so glad that I'm part of the family of God. Um, Kind of a funny thing to sing when you look around at a lot of churches today. And uh, if you visited a lot of churches and just looked around, I wonder if you would see people who looked glad to be there. Uh, I had a whole list of stories that I had been thinking of over the last week to talk about 1 Corinthians. And they were not necessarily Bible stories, they were just real life stories from churches, and they were not the kind of stories that would make you want to hold hands with the person next to you and sing, I am so glad that I am part of the family of God. And they're stories about problems, and some of them are funny, and some of them are not funny, and some of them are funny because of how not funny they are, and I had this whole list of things, and... and um, and I decided this afternoon when I was looking over it, I just thought, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about those things. Um, because at the end of the, the day, they're not funny. And if you're part of a church family, you should be able to sing that song and mean it. That you really are glad that you're part of that family. And unfortunately, a lot of churches deal with the kinds of problems that Corinth was dealing with. And just to be real upfront. I don't think there was a lot of people at Corinth who when they read this letter from Paul, obviously the song wasn't written yet, but you understand what I'm about to say. They read this letter from Paul and they're dealing with all the things that they're dealing with, said, let's end the service today by holding hands and singing. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. The, the church was in total chaos. And I want you to hold your spot in 1 Corinthians and I want you to flip back to the right uh, in your Bible to the book of James. And I just want to remind you and me why sometimes church is chaotic and messy and there's problems and it's not fun and you don't feel like you're very happy to be part of that family. Look at James 4 verse 1. James 4 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you okay in other words in that one verse James just said why do you have fights and quarrels you you're the problem something inside of you is causing that verse 2 you desire and you don't have so you murder you covet and you can't obtain so you fight and you quarrel you don't have because you don't ask you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. James is basically saying the reason there's fights and problems and quarrels inside a church family, if you really want to boil it down, 
is that we're the problem. It's us. It's our hearts. And it's the fact that we are self-focused, we're self-indulgent, and we're selfish people. And here in the United States of America, we have the economic prosperity and the political freedoms to take selfishness and self-indulgence and selfishness to a whole new level. And again, I have a whole long list of things of, of examples of how we're selfish, but I don't think I need to tell you those things. I think you know that. I don't think I have to convince you that in this country, by and large, we are selfish, self-focused, self-indulgent people. And James says that's the problem. When you get a bunch of those kinds of people together, to be clear, people like me and you, at some point you start to have problems and conflict and issues. And that was certainly true um, in Corinth. In Corinth, we're going to talk about these things. They were fighting each other. There was sexual immorality of various kinds. There was lawsuits between members, church members suing each other in court. Uh, people were visiting prostitutes. People were falling into idolatry. People were giving themselves over to drunkenness at church. And when they came together and had a worship service, however you're going to interpret the end passages, Paul does say it's completely too chaotic what's happening. This church was a total and complete mess. And look how Paul begins the letter. 1 Corinthians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus that means those who have been set apart they've been called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you, when you read through this book and you see some of the things that they were doing and struggling with and dealing with, it's amazing that Paul doesn't introduce himself and then turn right around and say, you're a bunch of idiots, knock it off. And instead, he begins by gently but firmly reminding them, you have been sanctified, you have been set apart to something better than this. You have been called by God to be saints, holy ones. And in that, just that introductory paragraph, there should have been enough rebuke for everybody at Corinth to get it. You're not living up to your calling. You're not living like the kind of people that God has created you and called you to be. So here's something interesting about the book of Corinth as we jump in. Let's talk about Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Romans, we looked at that last week, he had never been there. And he's writing to some people he knows, but some people he's only heard about. Very, very different with the Corinthians. And I'll let you fill in those blanks there, and then we're going to talk about these different things and flip around in our Bible some. There's an initial visit of Paul. There's a previous letter that Paul wrote this church. We don't have it. No one, no one knows what happened to it. But Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians. He says in the previous letter. So he wrote them a first letter. Then the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter. Mentioned in, among other passages, 1 Corinthians 7.1. Paul says throughout 1 Corinthians, you asked about this. You mentioned this. You wanted to know about this. They wrote Paul a letter asking all these questions. Then there is Paul's pastoral letter. That's 1 Corinthians that we're looking at. Then there was a painful visit. 
And in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, Paul talks about, I'm about to come to you for the third time. And we know there was an initial visit, so somewhere in there, we're not exactly sure where, but somewhere in there, there's this painful visit, probably after 1 Corinthians written. Then there's a sorrowful letter that we don't have. We don't know what happened to it, but we don't have it uh, today. Then the thankful letter, 2 Corinthians, and then one last visit. So we're going to talk about these real quick, and you can jot down some notes if you want to. Hold your spot, flip back to the left, and look at Acts 18. Acts 18. Acts 18, 1. This is Paul's second missionary journey. It's about A.D. 50. We know that pretty firmly because in chapter 18, Paul says that a man named Gallio is the proconsul of Achaia. And we know from Roman records that he was the proconsul in 50 A.D. And we piece things together we can find in scriptures. And we say, so it's about 50 A.D. Acts 18, 1. After, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla and we're going to talk about some of those things in a minute. This is the initial visit and so you can hold your spot there because we're going to come back to there. Then there's a previous letter, okay? Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9. This is the first letter we have that Paul wrote them but when you look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I wrote you, that's past tense, not I'm writing you, but I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So whatever was in that first letter that Paul sent them, one of the things he told them is don't associate with sexually immoral people. We know that from 1 Corinthians 5, 9. And then they sent Paul a letter, and we know that because you can look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... So they wrote Paul this letter, and they're asking all these questions. In this middle part of the book, Paul's addressing all of those questions that they had. And then there's 1 Corinthians, which we're looking at tonight. And then there's this painful visit. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 14. 2 Stay with me, because there's a reason that we're, gonna, we're making this chain of, of relationship. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours but you. I'm not after your money, he says. I'm just after you and being reconciled to you. So there's this painful visit where he comes and they sort of hash out their problems. And then there's a sorrowful letter. So look at 2 Corinthians 2, 3. We'll just start in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 2, 1. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. That's why we call the, the previous visit painful. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, 
not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So we call this letter that he's talking about here the sorrowful letter. Then 2 Corinthians itself is this thankful letter. And then flip back to Acts, if you held your spot there. And Acts 20, verse 23. Uh, I'm sorry, 22 to 3. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece and he spent, there he spent three months and a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to sail for Syria. So he decided to return through Macedonia. This stop in Greece was in Corinth. So here's my point. Okay, and hold your spot in Acts 18. When Paul writes to the Romans, he's writing to mostly strangers. You remember we talked about last week, he's on a missionary trip when he's writing the letter to the church in Rome. He's taking this offering that he's collected and he's taking it to Jerusalem. And prophets have told him, predicted, bad things are waiting for you in Jerusalem. When you get there, it's not going to go good. They're not, the Jews are after you. They want to get you. And so he knows in the back of his mind, this could be my last trip. And he writes this book of Romans. And it's sort of his, uh, his magnum opus, this great work of his life. And he pours himself into it. And, but he's writing to people he really doesn't know. He's never been there. He's never smelled Rome. When he writes to the Corinthians, it's like he's writing to family. We'll see in just a minute. He spent a year and a half in Corinth when he started the church. Very unusual for, for Paul. Usually he went to town, started the church, and things got so crazy he had to jet pretty quick. Maybe he could leave behind some of his friends, but he had to hit the road. 18 months he stayed there, longer than any other place. And he taught and he preached and he labored with these people, and he served with them in the church, and he built relationships with them, and he's writing all these letters back, and he's making all these visits to them, and there's just much more of a personal feel when you read through, through 1 Corinthians. So let me put a map up, just so you know what's going on in Paul's life. There's a couple of cities here. You see over on the right, Antioch. Remember when Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary trip? They were in Antioch. That's where they were sent out from. Over on the left, you see Athens. You can read about Paul going to the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. He went there. He talked to the philosophers. He got to preach in the Areopagus. And he was, you know, that was a, an exciting thing for Paul. But truth be told, when you read Acts 17, it pretty much says he got laughed out of town. You wonder how Paul took this. Most places he went, he got ran out of town by an angry mob. And they were angry because so many people were coming to faith in Jesus. And Athens, they listened to him and they said, you're an idiot. You're not even the kind of idiot that makes us upset. We, you're the kind of idiot that we laugh at. And they mocked him and he moves on in chapter 18. And he goes to a city named Corinth. So let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. I have some pictures for you um, of Corinth. That is... In the foreground, down low, that is the ruins of the temple to Apollo in Corinth. You can go visit it today. And there in the background, up in that hill, is part of the city. It's called the Acro-Corinth. And uh, it was sort of the main stronghold, the fortress of the city. So go to the next picture. This is the Acro-Corinth up close. And you can see these walls they had all the way up the city. 
And it's sort of just a sort of a protective barrier, a military strategic defense to say, if we really needed to, under attack, we could all go up to Acro-Corinth and we've got these walls and these gates that are going to protect us. Then go to the next picture. This is on top of the Acro-Corinth, a great view. You can see the harbor there. This was a port city and uh, very commercial. Lots of trade came in and out of this town. Uh, a lot of sailors and merchants came in and out. And the ruins you see right there on the, on the bottom left are the ruins of the Temple of Aphrodite. And not necessarily, um, scholars think, in Paul's day, but not long before Paul's day, this was an active site of um, not only pagan idol worship, but temple prostitution. And some historians tell us, maybe they're exaggerating, if they're exaggerating, there's still a lot, that there was a thousand prostitutes who worked at that temple up at the top of, a, of the Acro Corinth. And so in your mind, just think, this is Corinth, right? Lots of money flowing through the town. It was recognized as one of the most wealthy towns in, in Rome. It was the capital city of its province. So there's government officials there. There's important people there. There's a lot of trade going on, which means there's a lot of money. There's a thousand prostitutes up the hill. All of these things are in the culture of this city that Paul goes to and he preaches the gospel. Next picture. Um, this is the theater, the ruins of the theater. And I looked this up on several things today. I had never read this, and I, I just wanted to make sure I was right. It held 15,000 people. So we went to a basketball game the other night uh, in Lubbock, and the arena holds 15,000, and it wasn't completely filled. But that's a lot of people. And sometimes we, you know, think we're so great in the modern world. And they had some pretty great things back then, too. They had a theater that could hold 15,000 people. And um, most scholars say that in Corinth, there was a couple hundred thousand people who lived there. This is a big city. This is not a little fishing village, uh, but there's a lot of people here. Um, next picture, I think, is just a Roman fountain, sort of something that would be in all Roman cities, especially a capital city. You can go visit that, see that. And then the last picture is a road. Pretty impressive that it's still there. And uh, you can just see ruins on either side of that road. So this is Corinth. Here's the story in Acts 18. Paul goes to town, to this wealthy, economically uh, vibrant city, politically important city, sexually immoral city. And he goes to the synagogue and he starts preaching. And all these people in the synagogue start coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't take very long for the synagogue ruler in Corinth to sort of blow a gasket and run them off. And this is one of those things you want to know the backstory on it. We don't know the backstory, but we do know that Paul took the church out of the synagogue and moved it literally next door to the house of a guy named Titius Justus. And he moves the church right next door. So it's sort of like a church split, and they just move to the property right down the road. And they start meeting, and people are being saved, and people are, are coming to faith in Jesus. Now, do you remember Paul's last stop? Athens. And you remember what happened to him there? He gets laughed out of town. Nobody really believes. A few believe. Most laugh at him. He goes to Corinth. All these people are getting saved. And in a vision, God comes to Paul and he says, don't be afraid. I know it's starting to get dicey, but do not be afraid. Don't go anywhere either. Stay right where you're at. 
I have many people in this city who are mine, and they're going to come to faith. So you stay right here where you're at. So Paul doesn't leave. He sticks it out. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's, he's working as well. You can read in the first couple verses there about Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers. And Paul works with them to earn a living while he's in Corinth. And uh, eventually the Jews bring charges against Paul. And uh, they're jealous. They're upset. Um, you read in chapter 18 verse 8. After they moved next door, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So they run Paul out, he moves next door, and then at some point, the ruler of the synagogue leaves the synagogue and comes next door to the church and becomes a follower of Jesus. And the Jews, they're just outraged. And they bring these charges against Paul and they drag him before Gallio, who's the proconsul. You can read about that in verse 12. And Gallio basically says, I don't want anything to do with you guys, you're crazy. This is stupid. He hasn't broken any laws. He's not hurting anybody. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. And in return, they attack the new ruler of the synagogue and beat him. And uh, then we read down in verse 18 of chapter 18, Paul stayed many days longer. And then he took leave of the brothers and he set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So he takes a few folks with him. That's the background. He goes in. All these people get saved. They have to move the church. More people get saved. Paul's sort of in his mind thinking, it's time for me to go somewhere else. And God says, no, you're staying right here. I got more work for you to do. So he just plants and he works and he preaches. And all these people are coming to faith in Jesus. There's riots. They arrest Paul. They drag him before a judge. And eventually Paul takes off and then he writes back this letter that we have as 1 Corinthians. It's really a very, very simple letter. You ready? There's an, an introduction, if you want to look at the outline. Then in the first part, Paul responds to news that he has heard about the church. Somebody brings him word of how things are going. And so the first part of the letter, he says, hey, I've heard this and this and this and this, and you need to do this, 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 and this. And then in the second section... He says, okay, you asked about this, here's my answer. You asked about this, here's my answer. You asked about this, here's my answer. So first he responds to the news, and the news is not great. And then he responds to the questions, and the, excuse me, the questions reveal just chaos in the church. And then he ends the letter. So it's pretty simple. There's at least four things in this letter I wish we had time to talk about tonight, and we don't have time. So I'm just going to put them on the screen and you can read them, and if you're just dying to talk about them or argue about them, I would love to do either. So here's some debated issues in 1 Corinthians. What does Paul mean when he says we're going to judge angels? This one is less debated than the other three, but it's still pretty interesting to talk about. He's talking about church members suing each other and how pathetic that is that they can't just work it out you don't have the mind of Christ. You don't have enough wisdom to settle it. You're, you can't just come to a common ground. Are you serious? And he's just sort of in unbelief. And then he just throws this comment and says, don't you know that one day you're going to judge the angels? And then he just moves on and doesn't say anything else about it. He said, I, we didn't know that. We would like to know more about that. Could you tell us? And he doesn't do that. Um, what does he mean by head coverings in chapter 11? A debated passage. What does he mean about speaking in tongues in chapter 14? Um, 
I have read a lot, a lot, a lot of different books and commentaries and articles about 1 Corinthians 14, and I've never read one that I thought nailed it completely. And I'm not telling you that I could write that article. I'm just telling you when I read explanations, I say, okay, I can maybe buy this, but what about this? Or I read another article and say, okay, I'm with you on this, but what about that? And it's, it's a really, really a tricky passage. Um, and then there's a verse in chapter 15 about baptism of the dead. And Mormons take that verse and run with it. And uh, lots and lots of different interpretations about what that means. We don't have time to dwell on those. We're going to focus on the clear things. Last week I gave you 10 truths from Romans. This week I'm going to give you 10 lessons about church life from 1 Corinthians. All right? 10 lessons about church life. Number one, church should be a place of unity and love, not a place of factions and fighting. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. It's been reported to me, here's the news, right? been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling. Remember what James says about quarreling? What causes fights and quarrels among you? You. There's quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He goes on and he talks about that and he's saying there should be no division. There should be unity. You should be the same mind. He talks about it again in chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither the one who plants or waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Again, saying you can't be divided on this issue. Look at chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 6. <clears throat> Verse 1, one of you has a grievance against another. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, you've got problems in the church. Okay, how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to take them to somebody outside of the church, an unrighteous Roman official to be your mediator? Is there no one in the church that can sort of stand between you and you guys can come to some sort of common ground? Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? You've got bigger things ahead of you. And you can't even come to common ground with the people in your own church. Now, I'll be honest with you. In 2016 in Odessa, Texas, I don't see a lot of church members suing each other. Although I have had that happen in one of my churches. What I see more often is a disagreement, a rift, hurt feelings, and somebody or both leave. Just walk away. You understand in Corinth... There wasn't a First Baptist and a First Methodist and an Emmanuel and an Asbury and, well, I'm just going to 
take my toys here and go over here. It's just a church. Today, right, wrong, or indifferent, we have all these choices, and it's very easy for us in this country to say, eh, work it out, I'd rather not, I'll just go down the street. And I think if Paul was writing this letter to us, he would say, really, you're just going to leave? You're just going to walk away from the place that I led you to because you got upset about something? One of these days, you're going to be in charge of judging the world and judging the angels. And you can't even work it out in your own church right now? Look at chapter 13. We talked about this chapter a few weeks back when we talked about what it means to be a church member. I just want you to understand as way of reminder that chapter 12 is about life in the church and chapter 14 is about life in the church and in chapter 13 Paul didn't lose his train of thought and all of a sudden start talking about marriage he's talking about the church in chapter 12 he's talking about the church in chapter 13 he's talking about the church in chapter 14 and when he says in 1 Corinthians 13 4 Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hope all, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. He's not talking about you loving your wife or your husband that way, although there's application. He's talking about you loving the people in your church that way. That's the point. This is the kind of love that you should have for the people who are part of your church family. So, it should be a place of unity and a place of love. Number two, church should not center on one person. And we're not going to read this again. You can go back and look at chapter one and, and chapter three. But basically, you had groups in the church wanting to put different preachers up on some sort of pedestal as... This is the only person that spiritually feeds me. This is the only one who I can understand what his preaching is. This is the only one who communicates in a way that I can. He's just, uh, he's my guy. I can't listen to the other guy preach. I just, I need to be fed. Paul says, it's not about a person. It's not about one person. So, it's a show. That's what was happening in Corinth. There's nothing new under the sun. You understand that? This is not something we invented in the 21st century. This was going back, going on all the way back in Corinth. And you understand it doesn't just happen in quote-unquote trendy churches with all these campuses and video screens. It happens in Southern Baptist churches where one senior pastor is the end-all, be-all for good, bad, or indifferent. And Paul is saying in this letter, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be about one person. If it becomes about one person, you've gone off track. You've got a problem. Number three, church discipline is a mark of a true church. Chapter five, there's a man who's having an affair. It's public. It's not being hidden. Everyone knows about it. And not only do they know about it, but they feel good about themselves for being so open-minded that they're letting it happen, right? It's not like everyone knows about it and they're embarrassed. 
so that everybody knows about it and they say, well, at least we're just such a loving, welcoming church that we just, we love people, we care about people. And they don't do anything about it. And 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not meaning the sexually immoral of this world, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or greed, Powerball, or greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? And the implied answer to that question in the way he wrote it in the Greek is nothing. I'm not worried about people outside of our church, what they do. That's their business. It's those inside the church that we're to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus said don't judge anybody. Paul is saying exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 18. If somebody claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and they're living in open, blatant, flagrant, unrepentant sin, we're not talking about they made a mistake. We're not talking about they did something and then they were broken over it. We're talking about they're doing it, they know it's wrong, and they're not going to quit it, and they don't care. Paul says you don't treat that person like a Christian. It doesn't mean you treat them like garbage. It doesn't mean you treat them like filth. But it means you don't recognize them as a follower of Jesus. He's talking about church discipline. I know that's a funny thing for us to think about, but you know as well as I do that everybody believes in church discipline on some level, at some point. The difference is that most of us just draw the lines of where we're most uncomfortable. So if I was to stand up on a Sunday morning and say, you know, I read an article online this week. This is true, I did read this article that uh, the guy with the reality TV show and he's married to all these different women, I heard he got married to another woman. He added another sister wife. And uh, I've been thinking about it and I think I'm going to do that. That part is not real. It's just, <laughs> you're going with me. And I think I'm going to do that. And uh, so I'm going to be picking one of you to be my second wife. So I'll let you know. I'm pretty sure you would practice church discipline. And say, buddy, first you need some counseling. Second, you need to repent. And third, you're out of here. That's church discipline. Okay? Somewhere I can make you draw the line. At some point you say, enough's enough. The problem is in our society, when we think about church discipline, we've just gotten used to a lot. We're like the old toad in water and we just don't realize how bad it is. And maybe we need somebody like Paul to write to us and say, really? You're just going to let that go on and pretend like nothing's happening? So he's talking about church discipline. Number four, the church should look different than the world in the areas of sex and marriage. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And you can read those chapters. Here's all that I'm going to say to you. In that, in that statement, in, in me trying to summarize those chapters, there's got to be a negative aspect to that where we're willing with conviction to say we are against this. Okay, that has to be there. But if that's all, the 
only way we try to look different, if that's all we have to say to the world, then we've missed it. Because Paul says in 5, 6, and 7, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But he also says, do this. And as believers, there has to be something that we're for, that we stand up to the world and say, yes, we're against this, but we're for this. This is what we think is the best. And that includes marriage, singleness, sex, all of these things. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, you should look different. And you remember, he's writing to a church that's right down the hill from a place where a thousand temple prostitutes used to work. Sex is part of the DNA of Corinth. Immorality is just second nature, like our society. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. You can't get away from it. You can't hide from it. So we've got to look different. Um, number five. Some issues in church are matters of conscience where we can agree to disagree. There was this question in Corinth, all these pagan, pagan temples, they sacrifice these animals as an offering. Then they take that meat, they don't just throw it out, they take it and they sell it. And there's this question in Corinth of, can we go to Market Street, grocery store, H-E-B, and buy the meat that somebody else sacrificed to an idol if we weren't involved in that sacrifice or had nothing to do with it? Is that okay? And you had some people in the church who said, no, you shouldn't do that. It's not appropriate. And you had others who said, I, hamburger. Didn't have anything to do with that. I'm just buying the meat. And Paul's answer basically is, follow your conscience on this. And don't be hateful towards the other people in your church who don't agree with you. There's room on this issue for disagreement. You don't need to start two churches, the partaking church and the abstaining church. You just need to realize that it's okay for you to disagree on this. And don't be hateful towards each other. Um, Baptists have been historically pretty bad about this. And have had a strong tendency, and I'm not going to get into a lot of specifics, but have had a strong tendency to say, we feel this way on this certain issue, and if, you, if you're not with us, then you're hellbound. Sometimes we need to be that firm. And sometimes we need to step back and think about the things Paul's saying here in chapter 8 and say, do I have a strong conviction about it? Yes. Can I be in the same church with you and you disagree with me? Yes. And can I not be hateful towards you about it? Yes. So matters of conscience here. Number six, church members should be slow to insist on their way and quick to surrender their rights. Not very American, I realize, but part of what Paul is calling this church to. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. The whole chapter leads up to this. You should go back and read it. That's why I gave you these chapters and not just verses. But look at 1 Corinthians 9, 22. To the weak, Paul says, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And in that chapter, he's basically saying, look, in this area, in this area, in this area, I could insist on my own way. I have the right to do that. 
but I am willingly laying down my rights in these areas, things that I'm, maybe you could say, quote-unquote, entitled to for the sake of the gospel. And he doesn't do that with a bad attitude, and he doesn't do it unwillingly, but he's telling them about it to say, you've got to have that mindset. You've got to be willing to say in church, because this whole letter is about life in church, it's not about me. I'm willing to lay down my rights for the good of the gospel and for the furtherance of the, of the kingdom. Number seven, church should be marked by a sense of togetherness. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 is interesting. He, t- he talks first about the head covering issue, which I told you we're not going to cover for the sake of time, but I'd love to visit with you about it if you have questions. And then he talks about the Lord's Supper. And basically, here's what was happening at Corinth when they did the Lord's Supper. They would get together on a regular basis. More than likely, they had the Lord's Supper weekly, not you know sporadically like some churches tend to do, us, but consistently all the time. And they did it in the form of a meal. And they started having this meal, and they're all getting together, and you got some very wealthy business people in Corinth, and you got some very poor people in Corinth, and they're coming together. And I'm reading between the lines, but I think this is pretty safe to say. At one point, one of the rich folks says, you know, we come to this meal every week, and that person doesn't bring anything, and they're eating all my food. They're rolling through the potluck line, and they didn't bring a covered dish. And a little group of people get their feelings hurt, who have money, And they say, okay, here's the deal. Huddle up. We're going to come 30 minutes early, and we're going to have our own potluck. And then the riffraff can come along later, and they can have the seconds. Deal? Deal. So they come together. They have their own little potluck. And to make it even better, they bring wine to it, and they get drunk. They get lit at the pre-potluck potluck. And then all the poor folks show up, and they're like, you guys are toasted, and there's not any food. And Paul hears about it, and he says, really? That's what we've been reduced to? Some of you are coming on your own, and you're getting drunk, and you're not waiting for the others. And his advice is, you need to do this together. Wait for each other. Don't start without everyone. Wait till everyone's there and you do this together rich poor you're all in this as one there ought to be a sense of togetherness Um, that's tricky in churches but there needs to be a sense of togetherness and it cannot just be come see the show and then leave it has to be come and be a part we're together we're in this together And I think you see that in chapter 11. Number eight, God gives every Christian spiritual gifts for the good of the entire church. Okay, there's lots of things in chapter 12 and then chapter 14 um, that we can debate. One thing we cannot debate is that when God gives spiritual gifts to his people and he gives them to all of his people, He does it for the good of the entire congregation. That means every one of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ have to be willing to step back and say, how am I building up the body? What am I doing to make a contribution that helps this togetherness? 
If I'm not doing anything that furthers this togetherness and builds it up and strengthens it and makes it a better place, I'm not using the gift that God gave me at all or I'm not using it in the right way. Number nine, corporate worship must be orderly, but some things are inappropriate for church. And again, chapter 14 is really tricky, but Paul does flat out say in chapter 14 and some issues, don't do it this way, do it this way. The way you're doing it is not okay. Stop that and do this, okay? If we don't agree on anything else about chapter 14, I think we can agree that from that one lesson, you look at corporate worship, togetherness, which is what Paul's describing in chapter 14, and you say, we can't do whatever we want in corporate worship. Is there a place for creativity? Yes. Is there a, a place for different sorts of expression? Yes. Is there a place for different styles where we're willing to give up our rights, where we're not going to insist on our own way? Yes. But some things, we don't have to agree on what the some are, but from this chapter you say, some things are not appropriate for corporate worship on a big scale. Paul makes that pretty clear. I read an interesting article. If you want to read it, you go online, you go to Google, and you type in, Tom Rainer, T-H-O-M, Tom Rainer, Instruments in Church. Tom Rainer is the leading church growth, church health researcher in the world, and he released an article this week about, did this little study polling people, what is your most favorite instrument to hear at church, and what is your least favorite instrument to hear at church? And it's really interesting. I won't give it away, but you can look that up. Um, one last idea, the church is on a mission, chapter 16. Paul was the goer, and the church in Corinth was part of those who sent. And he talks in chapter 16 about um, the importance of sending. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Concerning the collection for the saints. You remember he's going to Jerusalem with this offering. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also so you also are to do on the first day of each week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what he's saying is, I'm coming to town and we're going to take an offering. You're going to be part of this mission effort. To send this team on and to give to this collection that's going to Jerusalem. So just a reminder that the church is on a mission. Okay, Really quickly, we're going to look at these super fast. Four lessons about salvation. And I'm going to let you fill those blanks in. And then we're going to read these scriptures. And then we're going to pray. The gospel is simple. Grace comes first, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we're anticipating resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of the most clear passages in all the Bible about explaining what the good news is. 1 Corinthians 15.1 I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it comes. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, meaning you can go ask them about it. Some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's pretty simple. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared to people. That's the gospel according to Paul. Look at chapter 1. Talking about grace and the role that it plays in our life. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18 The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. What do we preach? Jesus Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boasting is not in what we have done. Paul says we're foolish and weak and pretty much pathetic. Our boasting is that God has done great things for us. His grace moved first. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. When he says that, all of those yous are really y'alls. In chapter 3, he's talking to y'all. He's saying, you, all of you together, y'all. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if anyone destroys the temple, y'all, the church, God is going to destroy him. Don't mess with God's temple because the Holy Spirit lives here. So he says the church is, is where the Spirit lives. And then look at chapter 6. He narrows it down to individual Christians in chapter 6. And he's talking about sexual immorality in verse 19. He says, do you not know that your body, individually, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's the verse above, Jesus loves me, in case you were wondering. You were bought with a price. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Lastly, chapter 15. Christians are not hoping for some day where we float on clouds and play harps and wear robes and float around as a spirit. But we're waiting for the resurrection of our bodies. And you can read the whole thing. Let's just start in verse 35. 1535. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, animals, birds, fish, heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. One glory of the sun and another for the moon. One of the stars. Stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown as a natural body, it's raised as a spiritual body. There's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll end with verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And let's pray. Father, forgive us when we make the good news of Jesus too complicated. Forgive us when we think that we are part of your family because of something good that we have done. Remind us that we are weak and we are foolish. And the only reason we have to boast is you and your grace. Remind us that your spirit indwells us as a church family and it indwells us as followers of Jesus Christ. Remind us that we are not our own, but that we were bought with a price and that we're called to glorify you in our body. And Father, we long for the day when Christ returns and the trumpet is sounded and the dead are raised, and those who are alive are changed. And Father, 
my prayer tonight is that until that day comes and until we experience that great hope and it becomes reality, that just as Paul prayed, we would be right now steadfast and we would be immovable and we would always be abounding in the work of the Lord and that we would remember that our work for you is not in vain. Father, we love you. We're grateful for the privilege of representing you to the world. And Father, I pray tonight for our mission team who is leaving this week. For Chris and for Lisa and for Sarah and for Sammy. We pray that you would keep them as they travel. We pray that you would open doors for ministry while they're in Kenya. Father, we pray that you would be honored in their service, that they would be an encouragement to our friends there. We pray that you would give them wisdom as they make plans and as they think about the summer. Father, we also pray for our African friends who will be with us next Wednesday here, for the kiddos who will be traveling, that you would keep them safe that as they come and sing, it would be an evening, not just a performance, but of worship and celebration of who you are. Father, we're grateful to be a part of this family. And we know that we have problems. And we know that we're not perfect as a church. And we know that really the problem is us and our hearts. And so we pray that you would help us to live up to our calling as those who have been sanctified, those who have been called to be saints, and that the things that Paul wanted to be true of the church in Corinth would be things that are true of us. Father, we know that we need your help for that to happen. And Father, we know that if you pour out that kind of blessing on our church, that our only place of boasting is in you, not in us. And so we give you all the glory and all the credit and all the praise, and we do it in Jesus' name.